Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. Today we're discussing creative work, but the lessons apply to virtually anything in your life that brings out feelings of resistance, fear, or self-doubt. Our guest is Monica Ong, a Connecticut-based visual poet and designer. She's been practicing Buddhism ever since discovering it on study abroad in high school, and our conversation today is filled with practical insights on how to navigate a creative career as a Buddhist. Monica's own story is about identity, finding a way to value her work, and pave her own way as a poet. In 2015, her book, Silent Anatomies, was selected by U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo as the winner of the Corey Press First Book Award in Poetry. Today, she shares about her creative journey, as well as a more recent one, around how chanting helped her navigate life during the pandemic when she struggled deeply with sleep issues and health. Just this past week, she's had two works created during the pandemic, published in Poetry Magazine, and currently her exhibition of astronomy-inspired visual poems are on view at the Institute Library of New Haven. Here is Monica. So hi, so my name's Monica Ong, and I am calling in from Trumbull, Connecticut, and I am a visual poet, uh, whereby the poetry that I make often takes the form of poetry objects, book arts, audiovisual installations, and letterpress broadsides. Um, and as a writer, I'm I'm very interested in taking poetry off the page. And so I utilize my training as a visual artist to make poems that invite us to talk about uncomfortable issues or to explore hidden histories. And um, I work a day job as a visual designer in uh, a digital humanities lab. Um, and that informs my thinking about user interfaces and innovative ways to engage audiences. Um, and, you know, it helps me think about how can I turn an object like a medicine bottle or an x-ray scan into a poem that can start community conversations about things like mental health and other taboo topics that can often be shrouded by what I call like cultural silences or cultural stigma that can prevent folks from engaging in really important life-saving dialogue. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I. Th- it's so funny. So when um, I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking like her work, like you have to see it to really understand. <laughs> it is incredible. I, I just have to say I was so inspired. Just um, I, I love poetry. So I'm, you know, an easy audience in that regard. But just seeing it come alive with some of the visualizations, I was just like, oh, my goodness, I, I want to find a way to capture this. But hopefully we can link to something <laughs> when we publish. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. And thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I was so, so excited. So, you know, um, I know that we're going to talk about the role that your sort of Buddhist practice has played in your work, but why don't we actually start um, even before that? How did you become a a visual poet? Wow. (laughs) Well, I would say, you know, I I, I always wrote. I was always interested um, in stories, um, and but I was also like this 
kind of angsty person who felt like very, you know, just like a misfit, you know, that it kind of alienated from others. And, you know, I never quite fit in. Um, I was, you know, one of very few minorities, like in my class growing up in Northbrook, Illinois. And, um, and I often turned to uh, poets and artists uh, for company and for guidance. And, um, and I think, you know, when it came to, you know, when I got to college, I really just dove headfirst into, uh, you know, visual art, um, uh, while always, you know, still reading, but, um, you know, I was really fascinated with, you know, art and technology. And um, eventually, um, you know, I decided to go to graduate school um, to do an MFA in digital media. And, um, and when I got there, I met, um, you know, my digital seminar faculty happened to be a poet. Uh, her name's Wendy Walters. And, um, and I was really like scattered and struggling. And she could kind of tell that there was this kind of closeted writer in me <laughs> that was trying to come out. But I felt so bound to these ideas of disciplines, like that you had to work within your discipline or genre. And I, and I always felt like, all my life, this struggle and ambivalence about having to choose, you know, like you're either going to be a writer or you're going to be an artist um, or even in my identity, right? Like you're either going to choose to be more like American, quote unquote, or, you know, um, you know, Asian, you know, like, and, and I think hybridity, like always was a big theme, you know, in, in how I identified, but also how I worked. And, um, and I think through her encouragement and, and her turning me on to actually a lot of women writers who were already kind of working in the space, um, you know, after grad school, I just decided to really just embrace all of it. You know, and I think that's one thing that, that can be hard to do is just to embrace all of yourselves, you know, even if it doesn't fit into, you know, what society says, like, this is what a writer looks like, or this is what an artist looks like. Um, I had to learn how to step outside of other people's preconceived notions and to really allow myself the space to experiment and to, um, you know, make work um, based on my vision for it. And, and I think make work to me that would, could answer to the difficult questions and, and sufferings, you know, that I was going through um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, trying to address important conversations uh, in my community. So, um, so it was, a it, it, it was, it was quite a a path, uh, a long winding path. Um, but I think this idea of, you know, having a seeking spirit, like having, especially this idea in, in Buddhism, we talk a lot about like seeking our mentor, you know, uh, which to me is like having an orientation that allows us to like always learn from others and to seek out uh, mentorship and also to, to mentor others um, played a role in helping me kind of find my path. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. And there's so much there that I want to ask more about. Um, but so let's go straight into Buddhism since you mentioned it, because I, I yeah, that orientation, I totally agree is so important and so empowering. Um, so when and why did you start practicing Buddhism? Well, okay, I was def I was 13 years old. And I was I was that angsty, you know, like teenager angry I listened to heavy metal and you know I was just like mad at the world <laughs> and I remember my parents like kind of couldn't were at this point where they were like all right you need to just go on a trip and they um encouraged me to go on a two-week student exchange trip uh in Japan 
uh, through mm-hmm. my high school. And, and I was really glad to just sort of get away. And I had this, this complete luck of being able to stay with a homestay family who happened to practice um, Buddhism with the SGI. Mm-hmm. And their eldest daughter was my main host sister, and she was the one who took me around her town in Niigata uh, to her school and also to Buddhist meetings. And I was, I remember being so impressed by her unconditional compassion and openness. And honestly, it felt like for the first time, I didn't have to prove myself or like try so hard to be like American enough or Asian enough or even like smart enough, cool enough, whatever it is, right? Like I, I wasn't having to work so hard to feel like welcomed into a space. And, um, and it honestly felt like for the first time I'd met someone who accepted me exactly as I am, you know? And even though maybe like no one else noticed this, I felt this really immense like relief, <laughs> you know, in her presence that I just would never forget. And um, after we visited and bonded, um, you know, she became like such a close friend and she wrote me letters consistently for four years after my visit. And in her beautiful handwritten letters, uh, she would, you know, s- include little nuggets of wisdom from uh, the Buddhist thinker uh, Nichiren Daishonin, you know, things like she would say, become the master of your mind rather than let your mind master you, you know, and she's like, oh, that's a letter he wrote to these brothers who were struggling the way you are. And, and I was always so encouraged. Uh, I'm like, this person's making all this effort to encourage me. And, um, and it's something I always carried with me. And when I turned 18, and, you know, uh, was accepted to go to NYU. Um, I moved from my, you know, little suburb in Illinois to New York City. And I was completely overwhelmed when I got there. And I remember I was I just I remember opening the yellow pages, you know, what what are called phone books, which some of your <laughs> listeners <laughs> might not be familiar with. But this phone book, looking up Sokagaka International in the phone book, as she suggested. And then I like marched myself into the center off of Union Square up to the front desk. And I said, Hi, nice to meet you. So where can I get started, you know, chanting and practicing this Buddhism, you know, and they, uh, they gave me the number to a woman in the West Village. uh, And kind of, I think based on my sort of like, you know, understanding Buddhism through Hollywood, I thought I was going to meet like monks and nuns or something. But instead, you know, here, here comes this like beautiful modern dancer with like gorgeous long red hair and green mascara and like a beautiful smile and like the cutest cats. And <laughs> I remember thinking like, oh my goodness, like I want to be a free spirit, you know, and a creative spirit like her one day if I could just let go of my self-doubt. And I joined in the local group, you know, in the village, which was super warm and and full of really uh, creative and really interesting people. And that was about 25 years ago. Wow. Oh, my gosh. What a story. And yeah, just this friend in Japan sounds amazing just to get letters for four years that are so sweet and encouraging. And just this experience then of, um, I don't know, I guess it takes courage to move to a new city and then invite yourself into a Buddhist community. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I mean, as as so many people have shared, you know, on the podcast and throughout the community, it just it's like always such a welcoming experience. Mm-hmm. And to know that 25 years ago, which I was just I was very young at the time, <laughs> it was the same and so heartening. So yeah, thanks for sharing all of that, um, that context. So, so just to recap, and now we can, you know, um, or I, I want to ask a bit more about your work. Um, it sounds like you were already grappling with this kind of complicated sense of self, given where you grew up being a minority in, mm-hmm. I guess, Illinois, even, you know, three decades ago, it must have been even more different mm-hmm. than today. And um, and then you meet this friend and you start practicing Buddhism. Um, but how, you know, do you remember sort of like, how do I say this? When did it occur to you that chanting is something you could apply to your creative work? Does that mm. make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so. I I remember um, when I was starting out, you know, in doing art, I remembered the kind of uh, person I was who was always um, doing a lot of self sabotage, Mm -hmm. right? So, whether it was procrastinating, um, totally being late, you know, spacing things out, um, you know, I think all of these different things were manifestations of how um, much I wasn't valuing uh, my my voice and how much I wasn't valuing, you know, this path. And I I remember in college noticing that, like, as I started chanting, um, I was like, hmm, like, I should really, like start planning these things thing out earlier, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I, and I realized too, that, you know, it's, it, it was important for me to go through the process of going from head to heart to hand, right? So in the sense that, like, even if I want something in my mind, or I, I like, for example, like kindness, I can think so many nice things about you, Jihi, you know, and I might even feel a lot of really nice things, you know, for you. But if I don't actually take any action on it, it kind of doesn't matter because you're never ever really going to know, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and it, it doesn't synthesize, you know, in, in reality in any meaningful way. And so when I started chanting, I noticed that like I was always in my head and it was like I always had all these things I wanted to do. But my reality in my daily life, I wasn't like showing up f- to do the thing. And so I noticed that when I started chanting, it was like going from head to heart. But then, you know going from heart to hand, it it takes also compassion and courage. You know, you can have a lot of wisdom, but you mm-hmm. got to have enough compassion to care enough about what it is you're doing, but also the courage to act upon it. And I started seeing myself taking more risks, but also like really showing up, you know, showing up to do the work, showing up to the studio, like on time, sometimes early. Um, and that was like a totally different person than who I was before, who was, again, and I think, again, we all have these different potentials in our lives. But I think because I was so filled with self-doubt, I think these other versions of me that tended to sabotage my creativity would be the ones, you know, hanging out and I'll do it later, you know. So, um, and and chanting changed all of that. And, and it really helps me to really it helps me visualize like when I'm doing something is it going from head to heart to hand and if it's not what's blocking that 
and really identifying the barriers, removing them, and then acting accordingly. Mm, that's such a, yeah, it's such a refreshing way to put it and such a clear mm. way to put it, because mm. I think that actually applies to every aspect of life, whether it's creative work that you're doing or not. It's, I I can relate in that I'm a, I've always been a person that can think a lot about things, but to actually take action to do them has required me to chant. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so yeah, let's get into, you know, I mean, I, I wish I could even summarize your career to this point, but I feel like I can't <laughs> in a, in very briefly. But, you know, you've um, published an award-winning book. You've done so much work. You're continuing to produce new work. I believe you just have a new exhibition that opened yesterday. Mm -hmm. That's um, right. But then COVID happened, you know, and so many, you know, people who do creative work, I think, have had to really grapple with maybe things that were always a struggle in their process, but became even more difficult because of the isolation, because of the weight of what's happening in the world, all of these kinds of things. So I wanted to first ask kind of about this last year and a half, because I remember when we spoke on the phone, you shared it's been quite an experience for you. Um, can you tell me, yeah, what has your own experience as, as a creative been in the last year and a half? And how has chanting sort of helped you navigate your daily life? Well, prior to the pandemic, I actually had been struggling with very serious insomnia. And that came out of a, a kind of unhealthy relationship I had with work, um, which is not the workplace, but more the story that I have in my head about what work is in relation to my sense of worth. So as a creative, you know, I know my tendencies. I know I can be quite obsessive about the details in what I do. And sometimes the boundary between doing my best and a kind of toxic perfectionism can often get really blurry. Mm -hmm. And my insomnia was definitely connected to, um, you know, a kind of anxiety and this deep sense of inadequacy, um, partly because, you know, I was juggling so much, uh, not feeling like I could dedicate the time I wanted to each area of my life. Um, I was working as a full-time designer. I was trying to create, you know, art and poetry for this next book, uh, parenting a young son, and also just barely showing up for my friends and family in the SGI community. Um, but also, you know, I found that uh, particularly these last few years, I was so deeply affected by this, you know, kind of negative national rhetoric that our co country is often engulfed in. And as a woman of color, uh, feeling that lack of psychological safety, I sometimes turn to work as a place to hide, actually. Mm -hmm. And so when the pandemic forced us all to stay home, um, I really needed to acknowledge that my body was like begging me to still myself and um, to chant to shift my life from the not enough stories mm -hmm. about myself, which often, you know, it would keep me late in the office, keep me up all hours of the night, you know, and to try to shift towards a story in which I could say, what I do is enough. And, um, and I think some of these not enough stories came from being raised um, by my immigrant uh, Chinese parents who emigrated from the Philippines, you know, uh, in the 70s. Um, and their incredible work ethic made my education possible. And they, you know, sometimes also believed that the only way to be seen or accepted here was by working five times harder than everyone else. Okay. <laughs> At the same time, though, like the way I was internalizing it, or interpreting it was that 
there was somehow this story I, I bought into that my own worth and labor was somehow less than. And, and it, so it made it very hard for me to turn things off, you know, even when my colleagues were all packing up for the night. And so I actually spent the pandemic, um, you know, chanting and practicing the art of like letting go. And so letting go of the bad stories of myself that would tend to kind of get in the way. Uh, and um, it, because they kind of clutter my 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 perception and my ability to see the truth, which is that, you know, when we chant nam myoho renge kyo we can perceive our inherent worth as a Buddha. Uh, and that worth does not come externally from others, um, but it actually emerges from this practice of self-acceptance that allows us to unearth our authentic voice in service of others. And I think, you know, when we're so busy running, we can forget to show compassion for our own lives. And sometimes it's important to really prioritize quality time for our health. And, uh, and also know, like, you know, no matter how many wonderful things I'm chanting for, none of them will ever come true if I don't also prioritize adequate amounts of sleep and rest and time for nurturing human relationships. So, you know, during the pandemic, I actually worked really hard on getting my sleep patterns more normal again, uh, you know, through therapy, uh, the support of really great doctors. Um, and as, you know, things started normalizing more uh, in, with the rhythm of my body, um, instead of like my go-to of scheduling more to-dos, I actually you know, chanted to really hold back on that and instead would take walks with my family, you know, outside in nature or, you know, we'd play board games, you know, bake cookies, um, you know, just just again to recharge. And, and when I did have to get things done, instead of trying to do everything, uh, which can very easily be endless, um, I instead chanted for the wisdom to identify the top three most important things that I needed to do, you know, or sometimes it's like to do the hard thing rather huh. than the distracting thing, right? Um, and and then pray to really be effective um, and just focus on just, the, just those few things and then let the rest go, you know, don't worry about the rest, you know, for today, just just keep it, you know, short and simple. And, um, and I think when I started doing that habitually, it became a lot easier for me to set boundaries on my time and my labor, while also really centering my practice, you know, showing up wholeheartedly for the dear ones in my life, uh, and my art. Um, and, and it's just these little adjustments where somehow my life started to align um, you know, more naturally in the, with the rhythm of my body and with my family. And I started seeing things really blossom this year. You know, um, my, my, you know, even though our Buddhist group uh, was limited to Zoom meetings, you know, it, it grew tremendously. And in fact, we had to split into two groups because we had too many people. And wow. um, so I was able to um, begin volunteering to help help out, you know, as a district leader for one of the groups. Um, and, um, and the thing is that I, I, I realized like sleep felt like it was, it, it was like having a new superpower, you know, yeah. like I felt so much energy and I found myself feeling more creative this past year and a half than I have felt in the last five years. And I ended up making just a, a lot of really great new work that wasn't, didn't come out of pushing myself hard, but out of actually replying to um, you know, this really unfathomable 
year we've had together, you know, as as a community, and um, and I I found that my work was really more focused on trying to really comfort, you know, my reader and really trying to say, you know, you belong, and mm. and and together, you know, all together, this being together uh, through this art, uh, we're stronghold. And, and so it really changed the way I work, but also I'm so much more joyful and energized um, and have a much healthier balance in my life, definitely. Yeah, well, that sounds so, so tremendous because I know from, you know, friends who've had really challenging experiences around sleep specifically, it might sound so simple, but it's such a huge struggle. Like if you don't have your, your, your body isn't functioning, mm-hmm. um, in a way that can support you throughout the day, it, it really can wreak havoc on every aspect of your life. So that's so important. Um, so yeah, so I'm so, so curious um, what your, like what have been the challenges for you in actually creating the work itself? Well, so so I'll, I guess I'll break it up into like a couple uh, different approaches. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I think first, you know, in terms of like just the, the daily life, the day to day, um, I am definitely someone who has to chant in the morning, like for sure. Like I have to, because that will help set, you know, the priorities and the trajectory for the day. And, um, and like you said, like, you know, we can think in terms of really, really big ideas, but how do we actually make them tangible and actionable right Mm -hmm. so when i chant i actually have a set of index cards by my altar um which i use to you know as i'm chanting and i'm like visualizing the day i actually write down uh key actions that i need to take for that day um but at the same time i also write down the things that i will not do um and, and the reason is because it's also important to clearly see how distraction or self-sabotage sometimes shows up in the process, right? So if I'm sitting down, let's say this afternoon to do really, uh, you know, vulnerable, raw, creative writing, um, that's not the time I'm going to go on social media, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. like I I have to set a boundary. Um, Or for example, if I'm seeking to transition, you know, my creative work, towards more of a professional business, you know, to, to think about it in those terms, then again, I'm, I'm having to set boundaries and learning to stop working for free. Right. Mm -hmm. And to be able to really graciously turn down those, those favors and those side projects. Right. And, and like you, you know, and these things go for other parts of your life, right? Like if I'm going to host board game night with a family, that means all devices down, after dinner Mm. you know you can't do you got to make choices you can't do both if you're going to show up for something a hundred percent it's you have to be clear very clear what is a yes and what is a no Mm. so 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 that's kind of one one approach um but in terms of you know the making of the art itself um i guess that actually goes that touches upon you know how we think a lot about uh, resistance, mm-hmm. you know, and the way resistance shows up. So, so for example, um, you know, I think the moment you say your dream out loud, the, the, like the, the moment you set your sights on a goal, 
resistance will never fail to rise up to really challenge you, you know, and, and it's going to come in a lot of different forms. You know, it could be challenging people in the environment, it's distraction, it's rejection and failure, um, or it's, it's the one that's happening inside, you know, you have the inner critic, the, mm. the procrastinator, um, all, all, all different kinds of characters kind of come out of the woodwork. And, um, and I remember at the beginning of my career, you know, like my parents were really not keen on me becoming an artist at, at all. Um, in, in our house, it was like, be a doctor or marry one. You know, that was it. That was that was the choices. And I think whenever their friends, you know, would come for Thanksgiving dinner, they would like start questioning my decisions. You know, they, they'd say, we worked really hard to leave an existence of starvation and now you're choosing it. <laughs> you know, they would say like wow. things that would make me feel so angry and resentful. And um, but the thing is that the more I ch- chanted about it, um, and, I, and, and took a step back, I realized that, you know, these situations were actually just a manifestation of my own self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that anytime um, I heard criticism, um, because, you know, in the creative life, that's, it's everywhere, right? But mm-hmm. anytime it actually stung me, it was only because there was a small part of me that like secretly kind of agreed with them. You know, that's actually the only time it hurts, you know. And so um, so I remember going to a Buddhist meeting where um, someone was sharing uh, this really interesting metaphor taught by Jose Toda. Um, and Jose Toda was uh, the second president of the SGI, but he was also a really gifted educator. He was really great at taking really complicated ideas and distilling them into really simple visual metaphors, which for people, visual people like me, like I love that. And so he said, you know, we're we're just we're like this glass of water with with sand and sediment at the bottom. And um, and anytime we encounter an obstacle or a difficult person in our lives, it's as though someone's putting a spoon in the water and like swirling it around, and all that sediment uh, gets worked up, and and we get really cloudy. And mm-hmm. so so it's kind of like when you know, someone really gets under your skin, your mood really darkens and you get all stormy inside and you're like, ah, oh, this is so frustrating. And, um, and we get so focused on trying to keep the spoons out of our glass. Right. <laughs> and, but, you know, Toda actually said, it's not as important to focus on the spoon as it is to work on removing that sediment, you know, from our lives. And we do that by chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo as a way to like grain by grain, remove like each like little piece of self-doubt, of disbelief, of, you know, whatever not good enough stories we're still attached to, you know, we we actually can engage in a process of rooting those out of our lives and, and removing them from that glass of water. And what's interesting is that over time, when, when we're really consistent about it, when that spoon comes into the glass and tries to swirl the water, it stays clear. You know, you're not all clouded up anymore by things. And, um, and this metaphor was really powerful for me because it helped me develop the resilience that I needed to be able to, um, you know, weather anything happening in my environment. And particularly the fact that like the beginning of a creative career is full of rejection and failure and critique. I mean, these are all par for the course. Um, And I think when we're making art, um, you know, like 
you learn to see that resistance actually, you know, when you go to design school or when you go to a creative writing program, they're often described uh, using the word constraint. You know, these are all just constraints. And so whether you're writing a poem without using the word I, or you maybe you're making a piece of art out of the only material that you can afford. Um, I've learned from my job as a designer, working with you know unpredictable clients who come to me with impossible budgets and even more impossible timelines, you know how to leverage constraint in a way that focuses my creativity on problem solving. Um, and actually, it's the it's actually the way in which constraints push us away from the obvious paths that we're able to reach deep down into our reserves of creativity to innovate a new way forward. Mm-hmm. And the process actually entails us putting out our like weirdest ideas. Uh, it entails failing a lot, iterating on those failures, being able to receive feedback, whether it's positive or negative, having the wisdom to look for what's useful from that mm-hmm. feedback, and then having the courage to keep moving forward and, and working at it until we arrive at something interesting. And so this process can be really, really tough to endure if we're really easily swayed uh, by mm-hmm. our environment or temporary setbacks. But because of this practice, I've been able to see each step as an opportunity to learn and to develop my eye. And so actually the resistance that we encounter like in life and in art, actually they become a catalyst for bringing out our creativity and engaging in the kind of imaginative empathy and innovative problem solving that we can then contribute and service to others in a really meaningful way Mm. yeah wow that's yeah there is um so much there but i i completely understand and i feel like you're the insomnia example is is just the epitome of that (laughs) (laughs) um I do have one practical follow-up. I'm just thinking, you know, for anybody who's listening who maybe is at the beginning of their creative career that, um, as you mentioned, is wrought with all of these kind of challenges, very practically speaking, because you mentioned that you you work full-time as a designer and yet, and you're a mom and you're doing this creative work, um, for, for people who like have to make money and need to then also create some kind of time to do the work that mm-hmm. they really are passionate about, how do you manage that or how do you navigate that like practically speaking that's that's a that's a great question and it's funny cuz that's the question i kept asking a lot of you know other artist parents as well you know for mm-hmm. for many years um and and i think if you ask 10 different people you're going to get 10 different answers so you know i think part of it is is you know when we when we chant to bring out our our wisdom mm-hmm. um that's actually like a, a huge first step because I think, um, you know, no one knows better than ourselves, you know, what our lives need at a particular moment. Um, but at the same time, too, I think, you know, I had to learn that the way I shape my career does not need to look like the way other people's are, people are doing it, you know, mm-hmm. um, that uh, we can set our rhythm um based on what's right for us. So, you know, I, I try to be flexible. I think we have to be uh, flexible in how we do things. The other thing too is, um, I think sometimes too, when we think about like creative, um, creative productivity, 
there's this perception that we're supposed to be creating all the time uh, mm -hmm. or producing things all the time. And actually, like, that is not always the case. You know, I think when we look at the metaphor of like the garden, right, that also exists in seasons whereby, you know, um, there is a season for, you know, kind of like sleep, right? And there's a season for just planting seeds. And then there's a season for tending and then, you know, harvesting. So um, in terms of the way I think of creativity, you know, um, I feel like, you know, when I'm doing, um, like getting ready to do a new piece of work, um, to me, it's not about sitting in the studio and waiting and like, you know, pushing myself to like generate the work, but try to uh, figure out ways to kind of involve um, different aspects of my life, um, you know, in a way that mutually feed, you know, different parts of my life, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, 100% makes sense. And I, I completely relate to that, too. So I feel like that was actually my biggest lesson in my own work during COVID as well, just um, chanting to really see yourself and know yourself just goes such a long way mm -hmm. and then to learn like this is this is how I research this is how I work this is how I rest <laughs> like this is the life that I need to create in order to actually go for my dreams so I appreciate you saying that right right well and also too it's like you know I mean I'm one of those when my son was really young um I remember you know doing a lot of just taking note, I would take notes on my phone, like in parking lots a lot, you know, where he'd be at Kung Fu practice, or I'd be, you know, waiting, you know, to pick him up. And, um, and sometimes things just start, you know, um, kind of fluttering in my mind. And so I was totally okay with just sort of dotting, uh, jotting things down in my phone, and sometimes taking notes, like kind of casually. Um, and um, and then kind of at the end of a couple months, bringing all that together and making it into something. So um, so again, it, it, it's really like it can the what creativity is for each person um, can look kind of like anything, but you have to kind of find the the form and and a way of working that um, is natural to your rhythm and 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 your context, right? Mm -hmm. And that allows you to have some kind of sustainability, you know, because um, like, I know, like, in my head, when I was in grad school, I thought, oh, I need need to have, you know, um, a four hour block of time, and I need my studio to be all set up. And I need to, and, you know, that that was just me with this sort of idealized you know, idea of what creativity was supposed to look like. But when you hit the reality of things and it's like messy and it's chaotic, um, you know, act and what I really learned was that it's actually like it's in the mess, in the messy places and the messy things uh, where we grow a lot and where we're discovering a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, and and I think, too, you know, sometimes it's helpful to find community with other uh, like minded creatives kind of going through the same thing where you know we'll try to call each other and encourage each other um and uh and I also I mean I it was pretty intentional that you know when my husband and I met that um we had this partnership where we 
you know, had a very clear agreement about really being supportive of each other uh, through because, you know, like childcare is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and every time I've had, I've had to go on a residency or, you know, go away to work on stuff. Um, he's like very generously um, and happily, you know, been available to help help me with things. Um, just like I'll help him out with things when you know he needs the support. So, um, so I think, you know, really being intentional about the support network that we build around us um, can also play a role. Um, he's very good at calling me out on my baloney too, which I have to say because. <laughs> You know, when I come home and I say, "Oh yeah, there's this cool like side project thing," he he his first question is, "Is that a distraction project?" Because <laughs> <laughs> because he knows me so well and he knows when when there's a project that I completely make up to like avoid doing the project that I'm actually supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. um, and and I I think also you know and actually like early on like I really chanted a lot in terms of the kind of creative community that I wanted around me that you always have to make sure you have one person who has the kind of uh, relationship with you and the kind of compassion for you to be able to really call you on it, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, this is a reciprocal, like you, you also have to be willing to call your, your friend on their stuff too, um, because it keeps you honest and it helps you really be very clear about, you know, what the path forward is and, and not allow our, you know, self-sabotaging gremlins to kind of take <laughs> off, take us to some other rabbit hole, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's so many like practical sort of nuggets, I feel like in here that people can chant about like, oh, I, I need to support myself in this way. I need to take this kind of action. I need to find this kind of friend. So this is so helpful. Um it's interesting because so far we've talked so much about the internal process of creative work and the things that you sort of have to overcome. Not to say that everything in life isn't an internal process at the end of it, but there is, you know, the um, there is the challenge of validation, both when you, you know, do really well and, and you start to really get positive attention and also when you get really negative attention or you get rejected or you get criticized, you know, and that, as you mentioned, is like an ongoing struggle for artists and creatives of all types. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm wondering how like that experience has been or what role has validation played in your own work and how has Buddhism helped you navigate, I guess, your own desire for validation? So one of the valuable uh, insights that I gained from Buddhism is learning how to shape for myself a creative process that is true to who I am and that is its own reward. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like it's, it can be really helpful to win accolades or for other people to sing your praises, but I think Buddhism really grounds me and helps me stay very clear eyed about the fact that there's no way we can ever become happy chasing external validation. Um, and that it just can't be an end in and of itself. So rather than shaping my career around the question, am I good enough? I've really learned that I can grow so much more if I'm asking, how can this work encourage just one person? Mm. And practicing with SGI, I've always really been encouraged to develop um, self-reliant faith. So uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of uh, be- self-belief where we can 
you know, trust our creative path in a way that's not dependent on the opinion or the approval of, of others. And so, for, for example, for many years after I finished my Master of Fine Arts at the Rhode Island School of Design, I awakened to this strong desire to publish as a poet. And so for a long time, I actually thought that I needed to get an MFA in creative writing in order to be like qualified enough to do it. Mm-hmm. And luckily, uh, my husband, who was well aware of our financial state at the time, told me that, you know, this is actually more a matter of you having the courage to just sit down and write it and write from the heart rather than going around trying to earn enough credentials and permission slips from other people to feel okay enough to actually do it. Um, And, you know, and I'm not saying that it isn't a valuable endeavor, but in my case, um, it was just one in which I just simply couldn't afford it. Mm. And so, and, and, you know, and I totally understand the the impulse though, because it's, it's very normal for human beings to crave a process that already looks like what is glamorized in our field because it makes us feel safer and more acceptable. But I think my question is, what are we adding? Um, are, are we adding anything new to the conversation then if we do that? Um, and I say this because the way I was writing was also at the time, this is, you know, many, many years ago, it was very difficult to publish. And a lot of journals, um, they just didn't want writing with images or set in you know, unusual fonts and uh, and a lot of galleries also didn't always know what to make of the text of my art. And at the time, my work often got lumped into uh, this category of experimental literature called hybrid writing. Uh, and even though it was really weird, I just chanted to connect with the best mentors and to cultivate a seeking spirit um, so that I could keep reading a lot of poetry, keep making a lot of work, and um, and learning a lot outside of my you know uh, office day job. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow I was able to join uh, Kundiman, which is an organization that cultivates Asian American writers. Um, and so I joined as a poetry fellow. And um, and then I also somehow just seemed to keep connecting with other writers who were really advocating for and encouraging me to keep you know pursuing my work. And um, by the time I published my first collection, Silent Anatomies, in 2015, somehow it feels like the landscape of literature literally flipped because somehow now like hybrid literature is like all the rage now in contemporary poetry. And not only do editors reach out to me to publish poetry, but my artwork has also been acquired by institutional collections and awarded, you know, really generous funding. Um, and it's really interesting, too, how nowadays I get asked to join panel discussions with uh, writers about non-traditional paths into poetry uh, as a way to encourage more diversity and experimentation in American literature. Um, huh. So it's interesting because I don't think I'd be able to create that kind of value without having chanted to be true to who I am throughout the process and also asking myself at all times, like rather than doing what's fashionable, what are you doing that is new? What are you doing to be of service and what kind of creative risks are you taking? Um, And what I've learned in my creative growth over the years is that it's not about shaping myself to fit into a particular field or genre, but to actually develop the kind of life condition and practice powers that can break boundaries in order to open up new genres and broaden the field for more 
new voices to be heard. And I think that's where the joy of play and innovation really flourishes. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's um, so well said and and so important. Yeah, I feel like I needed to hear that. So. <laughs> Definitely, because that that um, I I it's a, you know actually we did a, an episode that was on a completely in a completely different way, but it was about imposter syndrome last week, and I feel like that I mean that is such a real aspect of of yeah trying to do creative work where there's already like a well trodden path and everyone took it and everyone looks the same and mm-hmm. you didn't take that path so you wonder what you're doing <laughs> oh like. and and trust me it's i definitely will have imposter syndrome throughout this like it, it, it's such a common thing actually mm-hmm. um but i think in a way it's like when you you know you're on the right path you know when you're 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 feeling that like oh you know what i'm doing doesn't look like so and so's it's okay well so, which is to what I would say is, okay, good, keep going. You're on the yeah. right path, you know, yeah. but you just got to stick to your guns, you know? Totally. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, this has been so amazing and helpful and just rich with, with um, so many insights. I'm wondering if there is any, um, you know, going back to Buddhism a little bit, if there's any sort of favorite um, teaching or concept or piece of guidance that you've really held on to through your own journey or that you really strive to apply to your work? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So because my emotions can be quite erratic, like the ocean, you know, in monsoon season, right? I actually really rely on Buddhist study as a way to study my ship across these waters. And in the many collections of encouragement uh, by Ikeda-sensei, there is a piece of guidance that he shares that really helped me helps me pause and recognize my agency over the trajectory of my life. So uh, it goes like this. Our lives are our own. It's not for someone else to dictate to us how we should live. All that awaits those who allow themselves to be continually swayed by what others say or do is unhappiness. We simply need to have the self-belief to say, this is right. This is the path I will follow. I am content. Happiness is born from such inner fortitude. Moreover, those who earnestly devote themselves in accord with the mystic law cannot fail to realize lives of total fulfillment. And I love that because, um, you know, there's this one image that I remember him sharing um, about in which, you know, he says, you know, also, we don't need to be like epic or put on flashy displays of grandeur in order to make an impact. Instead, you know, sensei, he kind of likens our journey to the small moves that we make to adjust our angle. And and even if it seems like we move things just a hair or like an inch or one degree, over the long arc of our lives, everything will line up and each intention is going to land us in places like much more wonderful than we can imagine right now. And so this has really helped me to have faith in the small moves uh, that I make each day consistently, sustainably, and with joy. Mm. Oh, wow. I love, I just love this idea of the small moves. I feel like that is the the key takeaway almost, you know, mm-hmm. small moves based on chanting mm-hmm. add up to everything. <laughs> um, exactly. 
Yeah, I I wish we could talk for so much longer because I I want to ask so many more things, but I I know that we're we should probably wrap up. So I would love to hear what um, I know you shared actually already what it is that you're working on now. But if there is anything um, that you're really excited about uh, creatively that you're doing now, and then I also wonder if you might like to read something from from your recent work. Oh sure. So yeah. So this week I'm actually on a retreat uh, at a writing conference and. I'm hoping to kind of round out my man- manuscript with more poems about women's labor and particularly women scientists. And I'm actually researching the life of the Chinese American physicist uh, Chen Xiangwu, uh, who ran very precise and difficult experiments for a couple other male scientists who eventually won the Nobel Prize thanks to her labor. And at the time, I think many were disappointed that she was never awarded the Nobel Prize herself. But it didn't deter her from from becoming one of the most notable experimental physicists. Um, and she was actually nicknamed the first lady of physics. So I'm hoping uh, this summer to create a, a tribute to her and hopefully offer another way for young people to get to know her. So wow. that's my, my next, that's the next thing I'm working on. Yeah, um, that's amazing. Yeah. As for, I will, I will pull up a a poem so there is a there is a piece i do want to share um that is actually about the astronomer uh vera rubin um she was someone who was you know working you know kind of in the in from the 60s till up until uh her death in 2016 um, and it was actually her measurements of uh, the movement of stars in, um, in the, near the center of galaxies um, that proved the theory of dark matter. And, um, and so I wrote a, you know, a poem looking at how she challenged uh, inequality towards women in her field back in the day. And mm-hmm. um, there was an interesting article I read about her, um, which um, noted this really interesting moment she has. So it says in the ni- in the mid-1960s, Vera Rubin was granted access to San Diego's prestigious Polymer Observatory, an old boys club so infamous astronomers called it the monastery. Though she could use the telescope, Rubin was informed that there was nowhere for her to relieve herself. The facility had no women's restroom. Hmm. So, um, so this is a poem I wrote, um, and I designed it in the st- in the style of this mathematical book on geometry. Uh, so it's a book; it's a page that utilizes and explains the shape of the triangle. So the triangle is a big uh, visual element to this, and so this is called the Book of Vera. To enter a room is to perforate the stark white page optical precision sharp as the inner edge of arms wide open. I was a girl born to be a shadow. The first point is to begin, to split open the fiber of the field, cut your teeth on curved starlight and lonely work. What does it feel like to be the only, where none before you came? The second is to pivot, Steady the blade as far as you can go. They will keep telling you not to go there, that the room has no room. Notice how the doors are spelled, how distant. How did you do it with four moons in your orbit, their little bodies calling you by your other name, mother, 
a generous garden that spreads forth onto long, wide tables. As the pulp of years give way to the shape of genius, you make a turn, circumnavigate a single point. Your son's gown pours onto the hot glass, tilted towards a spectra of galaxies burning. Spirals of testimony agree with you about the missing girls. Unseen hands that knead the dough, fold the cloth, hold us all down, their resistance a safeguard from the senseless spinning out of sight. I slip your triangle into the lining of my inner pocket. Beneath this concentrated scowl, I am a girl searching for the observatory bathroom, echoing the hallway where you firmly pressed onto the door a cut-out paper skirt and said, Look, now you have a ladies' room. After we spoke, Monica shared that she wanted to also thank her parents for the role they played in her work, both in giving rise to her desire to seek out Buddhism, as well as being the inspiration for many of her works. Nowadays, the poetry my readers love the most are often works inspired by my incredible parents, who I not only celebrate, but are also my biggest fans, she wrote to me. My biggest lesson from our conversation was the power of small moves to tackle our self-doubt bit by bit and create the life and work we are proudest of, no matter what others might think. For more inspiring stories, check out bootability.org. And as a reminder, if you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving us a rating or review on the podcast app, which helps the show get discovered. And of course, as always, to get connected locally or ask any questions, email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.